0: Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies, we aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community.
1: Hello, and welcome to Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 63. Our guest today, Kevin Bolan. Kevin supervises Skywalker Sounds Interactive Audio Department, which combines decades of cinematic audio experience with bleeding edge technologies to create unforgettable, immersive audio experiences that have won Academy Awards. Kevin's team collaborates with partners, including Disney, Lucasfilm, Marvel, Legendary Entertainment, and LMX Lab to extend the power of cinematic storytelling into location-based experiences and home entertainment alike. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here and talk with you today.
2: We're
3: excited to have you.
1: Let's check what we have in our news box. And maybe I'll start. I saw an official announcement on uh, Facebook 360 Spatial Workstation Facebook group um, that they're formally going to stop the support of the tools Um essentially going to discontinue the, the tools and it will be no longer available beyond even to download beyond May 2022 except the encoder tool which will remain in use uh, for video and audio encoding for Meta and Oculus, etc. Yeah, for somebody who's been using tools from almost the beginning of their the inception across God knows how many projects, we're talking about dozens if maybe not hundreds, um, and uh, also using the tools for teaching and for various other things. It feels rather sad uh, to see the the end of the chapter. I don't know what you guys think about it. Have you been using these tools at all? I saw a lot of uh, people that I know from the industry that have been kind of um, reacting with <laughs> outraged emojis and whatnot. Um, one of the community members actually suggested that, uh, I think Angela Farina who said that, who suggested that, they might want to consider to release it as a to release the code into the community and make it an open source, uh, because at the end of the day, we're talking about really valuable. that has been used over the years and will, you know, will definitely be a value for the community going forward. But that's kind of my two cents on the matter, really.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm quite saddened as well. Um, When I first started working in spatial audio, um, we were very excited to take advantage of the technology created by Two Big Ears, um, which was the company that Varun and Abesh had founded. Um, And ironically, they were acquired by Facebook the week before uh, we reached out to them to use their interactive tools for one of our interactive audio experiences. And so I've been using the Facebook Spatial Workstation uh, you know, as soon as it was available, I haven't done any 360 video work uh, in quite a while, but I mean, that tool set and that platform was integral uh, for quite a few of the experiences that I've worked on over the years. And like other folks have said, I think, yeah, there would be a huge value to the community if uh, the tools in the tool set were available uh, open source, if the code was available um, when Google stopped supporting the Google Resonance uh spatial audio plugin, they did make it available so that people who are already using it in their in their um workflows could continue to support it internally. And I think that would be great if Meta would do the same. Because there's even functionality within the, the Facebook Spatial Workstation that isn't, as far as I know, replicated or replicated in the same way in some of the other tool sets that exist. And so when I was doing 360 um videos, I would often be using a Facebook spatial workstation. And the Audio uh, 360 Pan tool set and the IEM tools, and you know when you're working with Ambisonics, it's quite easy to mix and match plugins uh, to do what you need to do and have the creative and technical um, control over the content. And so, you know, it was never a, a sort of one size fits all solution. It was always about like trying to use as many tools in your toolkit. Um, so it is a little sad that one of those tools may just be you know going away entirely.
1: Absolutely. And uh, as, as was kind of mentioned in a statement, um, there are a number of excellent tools available out there, but there are a number of features that are specifically unique to the Facebook 360 package. and uh, uh, as you said, the other two that come to my mind that uh, um, have similar core features that are critical for 360 video workflow are Audio ease and Blue Ripple. And, uh, and even, even then, uh, it's not kind of like apples to apples comparison, really. So we shall see what happens. Um, having said that, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, um, obviously we witnessed a, a few situations where something that was so widely adopted and successful uh, in, in our industry, across the wide community, Stop being developed, stop being updated. You know, like you mentioned, Google Resonance, now we have such a big um, product such as Facebook 360 Spatial Workstation. Why we see these things happening? Why there is no enough impetus and investment to continue supporting these tools?
2: And from my perspective, I think it's often just a business decision. Um, You know, when a company looks at you know, this is the cost of of maintaining these tools and updating them as operating systems and 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 software is updated, and you know we need to update the integration and maintain compatibility. Compared with whether or not that product is monetized, um, you know, often from an accounting perspective, it's clear. It's like if if we're just creating something that we're not earning any revenue off of, uh, are we actually generating sort of you know a benefit from the marketing or the public creation standpoint? Um, so even though you might have a, a tool that's, you know, critical for a small set of professional users, you know, who might even be at the, sort of the top of their craft, um, if it doesn't have that obvious return on investment, it's it's kind of challenging to make a business case for um, keeping a tool set supported. Um, the other challenge is if your internal creators or your internal team uh, leave or move to other business units, uh, then the people who are sort of the internal evangelists are no longer there. Uh, to maintain the tools or maintain the the motivation to support those tools, um, but I think from a certain extent there is a little bit of um, establishing the the need and the use cases and the the viability of of new tools and technologies and forms of entertainment. And once that need has been established, uh, sometimes the initial um, you know, uh, evangelists can actually take a step back and and step away because other people have have stepped in to to provide those opportunities. So I mean, uh, I think an example of that is uh, Oculus Story Studio. Um, you know they were they were very early in creating really high fidelity narrative VR content. Um, but once they established that high fidelity VR content actually you know had a place in the in the entertainment ecosystem and that there were other studios making that type of of content, um, I don't think Oculus and now Meta um, saw as much of a responsibility to fill that niche themselves uh, themselves. And so I think it's probably the same with the Facebook spatial workstation or like I mentioned the the Google Resonance tools or you know any of the other various things um, in immersive audio. You know once you've put something out there and established the community, then uh, to a certain extent, the community may be able to sustain itself.
3: I was just gonna say, I think that's one of the you know challenges for working in an industry that's still developing is you know the tools are you know there might be excitement around one tool from a company for a while before um, you know that excitement kind of leaves from that company or the company dissolves for you know economic reasons or whatever, and you know how is how do we as a community adapt to ever-adapting and evolving tool sets.
1: Yeah, I think you guys hit all these nails absolutely on their heads. The, the only thing I would add is that maybe another kind of contributing factor to all this situation is that maybe the momentum with 360 video as a medium has been lost a little bit in the grand scheme of things. You know, if we compare things three, four years ago, we were in a very different place. And uh, I still believe in the, in the 360 medium in its own right. I think... It has headroom to evolve and it has its place. And, you know, we've seen loads of incredible pieces done in that format. And I think people just kind of run out of ideas that, you know, well, maybe we're waiting for some some kind of innovation, another push, another level within that for, for 360 to, to become important again within the larger um, sort of XR industry context. Another big thing that happened in the industry uh recently is the fact that epic games have acquired bandcamp, yeah that's a really interesting development obviously we witnessing the the convergence of entity that very much belongs to the music industry with the entity that very much represents the gaming industry slash metaverse um speaking more in recent terms. What would you guys think it's kind of self explanatory but at the same time like it would be interesting to hear your opinion in terms of um, you know, how would you unpack this move?
2: I don't think it's entirely surprising. I think for anyone who's working in the entertainment industry, um, especially um, those of us who've worked with independent content creators, there's kind of this this frustration when you work on something that's maybe only available in a, a very specific niche format, or it's only available sort of as a location-based experience, or it's only available at 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 festivals or conferences. Uh, you know, the, the need and the want to uh, bring art to a greater and wider audience. And, you know, I think that, that drive is is works in parallel with that same motivation on, on behalf of the sort of like the business and the industry. Right. So uh, the more opportunities you can create to make uh, say a, a piece of music available on more platforms for more users, for more fans, um, it often makes sense. I think the, the challenges are, um, are, are artists and creators still fairly compensated uh, in the same ways that they are sometimes when, when these, these new platforms and markets emerge, uh, once, once, you know, their distribution channels are then owned by other companies? I mean, that's always the sort of fear is that, uh, you know, the larger companies are going to step in and take a larger, um, you know, slice of the revenue. Um, but honestly, I got into professional audio right after the sort of um, Napster and Internet MP3, uh, you know, debacle in the music industry. And, you know, some of us didn't necessarily even th- know that the or didn't even think that the music industry was going to survive um, that sort of demonetization uh, of of art due to digital, you know, music distribution. Um, but it turns out it was really just a disruption Um, And then, you know, once everyone figured out how to capitalize on the new markets and the new opportunities, you know, we've continued to grow and flourish and seen the the music industry evolve and adapt in totally unforeseen ways. Um, So I don't think it's an entirely surprising development, um, but I hope that um, the artists and the causes and the charities that they support um, via the Bandcamp platform are are continued, uh, even though Epic Games... Um, Now, as you know, ultimately an owner of the platform.
3: Yeah, I think I I just echo a lot of what you said, Kevin, and um, yeah, just trying to kind of hope and that this will be a beneficial move for the artists that are already so reliant on Bandcamp, as it's been a really um, a positive place for a lot of artists that I know, just as a space to be able to sell their music and get a pretty you know good uh, you know return on the music that they sell uh, i have i have a lot of friends that use that that platform so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves with uh within the epic game structure
1: obviously it's a a very different business model compared to like sort of spotify where um you know money is being distributed according to a completely different system and algorithm and where a line share of revenue is being taken by record labels and very little actually trickles down to the the artists themselves. And in this case, it's fan direct uh, business model where uh, not only the music creators uh, can see the direct revenue uh, from their fans, but also there's a whole plethora of additional revenue um, opportunities, such as, you know, selling um, performances, in this case it could be performances in metaverse, you know, merchandising, and, you know, the whole thing with the NFTs as well, where it kind of feels like, you know, NFTs merchandising could potentially merge into some kind of in that digital uh, realm eventually as well so yeah it's like you said it's not entirely surprising and seems like a clever move and just uh, further consolidation and convergence of these adjacent entities
3: well kevin thank you so much for joining us today and um I'm excited to, honestly, uh, you know, the game audio is not my specialty, so I'm also very interested to learn more from you about um, everything that you've been doing at Skywalker Sound and IMLX Lab and how you've been applying that to um, some of the stuff, uh, the projects you've been working on. So. Um, to get going, though, let's. Uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into working with spatial audio?
2: Sure. So my path to spatial audio was actually a little roundabout, um, but I'll try to make it succinct. Um, I was pursuing a bachelor's degree in business administration from the University of San Francisco, and uh, while I was pursuing that bachelor's degree, I, what I was really interested in was digital media and um, media technologies and audio technology. Um, you know, I thought about switching my, my major to media studies, um, but I was far enough along in my degree program that I still ended up graduating with a degree in business administration. And then shortly after graduating, I enrolled in, in a second bachelor's degree program uh, from a school called Expression College for Digital Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a degree in sound arts, and then I was lucky enough uh, to immediately land a contract at Electronic Arts Redwood Shores, down in um, Redwood City California um, that studio is also known as visceral games and uh, you know so entry level in the professional games industry right out of school I had the opportunity to work on various games in the dead space franchise um, Dante's Inferno and the Godfather 2 game um, and so you know those were were triple-a uh, console and PC games using object-based audio in EA's proprietary toolset. Um, tool set. um After doing two contracts at EA, I had the opportunity to join Skywalker Sound as a recordist and an assistant re-recording mixer. Um, So I was supporting multiple dub stages that were mixing feature films and shows at that time in a traditional multi-channel format, uh, 7.1, 5.1, Dolby EX, um, you know, sort of the surround sound, the various surround sound formats. Um, But then Dolby introduced Atmos, and so I was able to... Um, help with the first two films that Skywalker mixed using this new object-based workflow, uh, which were oblivion and Pixar's brave. And then in round about 2015, I was actually sort of able to combine those both, both the object-based audio tool sets and the cinematic film sound skill sets that I had learned um, to help support ILMX labs, debut VR project called trials on Tatooine*. Um and we were actually able to use an early version of the Oculus Spatializer plugin in the Unreal Engine to spatialize specific sound objects. Um, and what was interesting about that project is we didn't really know what formats and presentation that virtual reality would have, whether for home download or location-based. And so we actually authored that experience to be primarily a 5.1 speaker setup with also a headphone down mix. And then when we debuted it at the Sundance Film Festival, um, we decided to improve the headphone rendering, um, with specific spatial audio objects. Um, since then, uh, I've worked on dozens of VR experiences, augmented reality, mixed reality, location-based experiences, and 360 videos, um, using various forms of object-based audio and ambisonic audio, um, for spatial audio rendering. So, um, I've been lucky into work on sort of several launch titles for various platforms or various spatial audio tool sets, you know some of the very first 360 videos that um, featured spatial audio that also had um, headlocked you know stereo channels, um, as as well as you know early launch titles um, for both the HTC Vive, the Oculus um, Rift, and um, the Oculus Quest, uh, which is now the the Meta Quest Two.
3: Well, thank you. Um... Yeah, so can you tell us about your current role and um, what you're doing, and a little bit more about ILMX Lab and Skywalker Sound?
2: Sure. So I'm the audio director for Skywalker Sound's interactive audio team. We do all of the audio design and integration for ILMX Lab's experiences. Uh, we also work with various other clients, Disney Animation, um, Legendary Entertainment, um, various other companies, uh, including AAA game studios. Um, most people know Skywalker Sound as the sort of sound effects, sound editing, sound design, sound mixing, um, and music recording division of, of Lucasfilm. Uh, it was started uh, back in 1975 by George Lucas. Um, our main facilities are um, at Skywalker Ranch in Northern California. And so while most of us are sort of familiar with the Star Wars films and now the Marvel films and the Pixar films, um, for quite a few years now we've had an interactive and immersive audio team. Um, that works on video games, works on virtual reality, works on theme park attractions. Um, And as we're seeing sort of a convergence between game engine technologies and audio middleware and um, spatial audio rendering for headphones and speakers, um, we've had an opportunity to work on a lot of cool projects. Um, Lab is Lucasfilm's immersive entertainment studio, and they were founded on ILM's campus down in the San Francisco Presidio, and they create virtual and mixed reality experiences. Um, and their, their goal is really to provide narrative-driven stories that allow fans to step inside the worlds of, of these films and media franchises that they're familiar with, you know, Star Wars and others. And so it's a really great opportunity for us at Skywalker to both be a sort of, um, you know, a, a, a partner for, for internal and external clients so we're ostensibly the sort of in-house audio team at X Lab, um, as well as being able to, um, you know, contract and work with with other companies outside of the Disney family.
3: So this sounds like a really awesome place to work, and uh, sounds like you get to try working with a lot of new technologies. Uh, would you like to comment on just what the experience of working at Skywalker is like?
2: Yeah, I mean Skywalker Sound is is really. Kind of a one of a kind unique experience um, you know there are quite a few large companies that do um, post-production for film and television and, and streaming shows but Skywalker is is unique both in its location in Northern California, which sort of separates itself from um, the rest of the industry, which is often based in the the Los Angeles area or um, you know there's a, quite a bit in the in the UK and the United Kingdom. But Skywalker really takes a unique approach to both the, the sound design and the implementation and the adoption of bleeding-edge of tools and technologies. So on one hand, you know, we get the opportunity to work with world-class filmmakers at Lucasfilm and Marvel and Pixar and Disney. But then on the other hand, we're also working with, like, independent directors and creators on a range of nonlinear projects that include art installations and theme park attractions um and the the depth of experience and the passion for sound innovation is really unparalleled and the the mentorship and the knowledge sharing is astounding you know um a lot of the supervising sound designers at Skywalker Sound have been with the company since the very beginning of their careers uh and many of them started in entry level or apprentice level positions you know they're they're um award winning you know sound designers that started in operations or in in the mailroom at Skywalker Sound. And it's just like a fabulous community for bringing people up from the very beginning. So, you know, honestly, I knew nothing about working in linear post-production for feature films in the way that um, it was going to be applied, at, you know, in that job that I was stepping into. Um, but they really train everyone in, in the community to be able to, to do everything that they need to do And most importantly, to be able to, um, adapt as the tools and the technology change. Um, so it's really not necessarily about having, you know, sort of world-class experience and then getting the opportunity to work at Skywalker. It's really the, the, um, opportunity to work at Skywalker sound and then grow to be that, you know, world-class talent, like a, like a, a Ben Burt or a Gary Rydstrom or a Randy Tom or a a Chris Boyce or a Laura Hirschberg. um, you know, just the opportunity to practice your craft with so many other people who are just so passionate about sound is is really, it's just an unparalleled opportunity.
3: Well, it sounds like you really enjoy working there and enjoy what you do.
2: I do. I mean, every day is something new and exciting. And the opportunity to work on multiple different projects um, simultaneously is great. So you could be working on like a feature film or a streaming show one day and virtual reality the next and a video game, you know, the next day. Um, so it's it's really a great way um, to rapidly um, learn new and interesting skills or to deepen existing skills.
3: Our hot topic for today is going to be discussing Star Wars Tales from the Galaxy's Edge. So, Kevin, this is one of your latest projects that you've gotten to work on. And for our audience, can you give us a brief overview of what is Star Wars Tales from the Galaxy's Edge?
2: Sure. So, Star Wars Tales from the Galaxy's Edge is actually an extension of the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge theme park experience. And it's a virtual reality experience that actually expands upon guests' experiences that they might have in Black Spire Outpost, which is the setting featured in the Disney parks. Um, It's an action-adventure VR experience on the MetaQuest 2. So you get to team up with classic characters like C-3PO and R2-D2. You adventure through the wilds of Batuu, which is this new planet that was introduced um, for Black Spire Outpost in the Galaxy's Edge theme parks. And you also get to be transported into other times and places in the Star Wars Galaxy through stories told by our new um, Cantina proprietor, Cecil Slack. And so he's a bit of an unreliable narrator um, that tells these really fantastic tales. And you sort of get to be transported back to, you know, the High Republic or to, you know, back just before the events of, of the Empire Strikes Back film and, and actually inhabit um, and, you know, sort of personify certain characters, both new and um, unfamiliar and, you know, classic characters like um, you can encounter Yoda and and various other Jedi. So it's really a combination of of both new and old in Star Wars in a way that, that combines experiences from multiple platforms into one sort of seamless virtual reality anthology. Let me power everything up. Might take a sec.
3: So, how do you approach working on a project of this scale? Um, can you give a broad overview of the
2: workflow? Sure. So, from a certain perspective, it's a relatively familiar workflow for tho- for folks who have been working in in game audio, um, especially working on the larger or like AAA game experiences. And so, we appor- we approach the development of ILM X Lab the same way we would support audio for any AAA game developer. Um, from early script versions and concept art, we sort of scope out, you know, the the scope and scale of the project. We identify what the key creative pillars are. Um, but from the earliest prototypes, proof of concept demos, the gray box levels, we actually start iterating on sound design and integration. We help with all the dialogue recording and the playback for performance capture. Um, and I get to participate in music supervision that includes the score composers and diegetic source music producers. And... So over the course of the development, we're supporting anything in the game that can possibly make sound and ensuring that it, it meets or exceeds the, the, the creator's expectations. Um, and then once the game is actually complete, once we've actually put all of that content together, we spend as much time final mixing it as possible to make it sound like a very impactful uh, cinematic experience and, and not sort of just like a, a, a traditional video game. Um, and we also actually, from the audio team, support a lot with localization, including subtitle support. Because it's important to us that um, the spoken English language narrative is also translated in in text in a way that makes it accessible to the widest range of of fans. Um, And that also includes fans um, who may be hard of of hearing or have other difficulties, um, you know, understanding the audio experience. Um, Sometimes text and subtitles might be the only way that they actually interact with the narrative, uh, you know, in parallel with the other visuals, so from the audio team, it's important that um, you know our work actually extends to them as well.
0: you must have one hell of a death wish coming here like this. Well,
2: wish oh.
1: granted. <laughs>
3: So I know you've mentioned that uh, you know you work with a lot of different technologies. What are some of the softwares that are being used for both the audio and visual components of the game?
2: So our core tool set is the Audio Kinetic Wise um, audio engine with the Oculus Spatializer plugin um, integrated into the Unreal Engine. Um, a lot of the the animators and VFX artists are using both um, industry-common tools like Maya um, but also a lot of ILM's proprietary tools for VFX and animation. Um, but on the audio side, we primarily utilize Wise um, and content creation in Avid Pro Tools.
3: Right. Um. And actually, I just want to clarify. So now, now that you're talking about this more, it doesn't seem as much of a game as an experience.
2: Well, it's actually both. Um. So I would say there's there's core elements that you would be right at home at any sort of uh, traditional AAA first-person shooter you know navigating through environments and facing off against waves of enemies um, with increasing difficulty that have different weapons loadouts and different strengths and and vulnerabilities that you can take advantage of uh, with your own weapons and equipment um but that said all of that sort of action gameplay is really just a means to an end um to tell the stories that we're telling about exploring the environment um you know rescuing characters from peril um discovering secrets and treasures uh throughout the world and so, whereas um, some of our earlier experiences, both sort of for the at-home downloadable market and as, as our location-based experiences, were often sort of more experiential—you know, it's it's more about just sort of going into an experience and watching the story unfold, and maybe having some sort of light agency—I um, would say *Tales from the Galaxy's Edge* really does its best to also embody a lot of sort of tried-and-true game mechanics. So that you have a sense of replayability and you have a sense of mastery um, throughout different difficulty levels, um, as well as things like being able to upgrade your equipment and, and upgrade uh, the player's gameplay mechanics. Uh, those are all, all sorts of elements that we've been evolving over the years at ILMX Lab, and I think Tales from the Galaxy's Edge really uh, integrates them in a, in a way that that we haven't seen at a level that we haven't executed on yet before.
3: Let's get into discussing. Uh, what everyone is excited to hear about, which are the spatial audio elements. Um, Can you discuss a little bit about, you know, what is spatialized in the game and what some of the uh, workflows around that are?
2: Sure. So almost everything in Tales from the Galaxy's Edge is spatialized. Um, I would say a good 95% of the audio that you hear at any one time will all be individual spatial audio objects that are implemented in the game engine. Um, We do have certain non-spatialized elements, like certain lines of dialogue that are treated as voiceover. We have music score that's treated as either stereo or sometimes pre-rendered binaural. And we also have some background ambience beds and room tones that are also pre-rendered binaural as well, Um, rather than implementing them as multi-channel or ambisonic and then rendering to binaural in real time, Um, We're able to save resources and also sort of make artistic decisions um, for certain types of assets by pre-rendering them as either stereo or binaural. But uh, throughout the experience, we're constantly playing dozens of real-time position spatial audio objects in every level. And the goal there is really to maximize immersion and provide positional feedback for the player. So like I said, like in traditional action-adventure games, knowing where you are in the world, knowing where there are threats... Um, and you know, knowing where there's um, objectives or, or paths that you can traverse through the environment. It's really important to convey all of that uh, with spatial audio. Um, that said, we have learned over a course of you know, dozens of interactive and immersive experiences that spatialization, filtering, reverberation, they're really good at, at simulating externalization and distance, um, and those tools and workflows like improve every single day Um, So every single one of our experiences sort of one-ups the previous experience in those regards. Um, But we found that um, adding that sort of um, simulated distance also creates like an intellectual and and sometimes an emotional distance from the content or the characters themselves. Um, So sometimes when it's important to speak directly to the player through their character, we actually manipulate the spatialization in in less realistic ways. Um, And we sort of usually talk about that as sort of lending itself more towards the Um, cinematic realism as opposed to realistic simulation.
3: So what are some of the tool sets that you're using to spatialize uh, sound um, within your workflow?
2: Sure. So um, from our sort of um, aesthetic creative perspective, we actually use spatialization to push and pull the player's sonic and their emotional perspective. Um, So... Usually within Avid Pro Tools, we sort of decide if a, a specific sound object is is going to be implemented as like a mono object. Is it going to be a stereo sound where we can actually control the width of its um, perceived width of it in, in the, the soundscape dynamically, perhaps like based on distance or some other you know creative mix control. Um, is it something that's best implemented as a, a multi-channel, like a quad ambience that then maybe we would we would render down to binaural? Um, We sort of decide sort of the the channel width or the format uh, within Avid Pro Tools when we do the rendering. We ingest all of those WAV files into the Audio Kinetic Wise tool set, and then we either pan them through a a spatial audio bus that includes the Oculus Spatializer or to a non-spatialized bus that will just render it um, stereo through headphones um, to the users. For all of our pre-rendered binaural content, um, we use a variety of different tools. Sometimes it's the Facebook Spatial Workstation. Sometimes the Ease 360, 360 Pan Suite. Um, sometimes the, the Dear Reality, Dear VR Micro or Ambi Micro. Um, for a lot of the music, uh, we would actually take 5.0 stems and, and premixes from the composers. And then I would upmix those to third order ambisonics. Uh, and I think I used the Pentio 16 Pro uh, plugin for that and then downmixed those ambisonics back to binaural. That way, what I could do with the score is control the amount of width and depth and verticality and separation between the instruments so that I could either choose for something like an exploration loop or a combat loop to sort of make it sound sort of wider and deeper and perhaps more distanced from the listener uh, in order to give our, our spatial audio objects for environmental sounds and gameplay mechanics sort of more prominence in the mix or for things like um, narratively important cinematics or cutscenes or scripted events, I could actually render those as being sort of more uh, traditionally foreground uh, score elements, so it would feel more like a, a, a film or a movie in those moments as opposed to a game. And so we actually use the sort of spatialization to push and pull things in the soundstage, both in terms of, of perceived prominence and, and distance, but also you know, width and verticality. Um, So, you know, like in a really emotional cutscene with Master Yoda, uh, you know, you don't necessarily want to realize that like those high flutes have been, you know, panned and sort of lifted above the listener perspective. Um, Sometimes spatial audio can actually be more distracting than it can immersive if it's not actually really justified by the needs of the narrative or the gameplay mechanics.
3: Yeah, so... Let's get a little bit deeper into talking about kind of the different different elements, like you have dialogue, music, sound effects, and Foley. How would you approach working with spatial audio differently for the different components that are a part of building these scenes and experiences?
2: For character Foley, that's almost always um, fully spatialized, um, attached to as many different attachment points on um, our characters, both player characters and non player characters, as possible. So, for a player character, even though you might not um, see your feet rendered in the game, as you're either traversing around using the throttle mechanic or teleporting, we always do sort of play footstep sounds below you uh, to sort of anchor you in the world. Um, likewise, with our non player characters and enemies, you know, we always want their footsteps to emit from both their right and left foot. You know, we want body falls and limb impacts on the ground and other surfaces to be spatialized correctly because you can be right up next to or on top of, you know, some of these characters when they interact with the surface or in the environment. So the the positional accuracy is is super, super important. And usually the Foley sounds don't have as much narrative impact as the dialogue or music does, or uh, what we would call sort of our sound effects or sound design assets. Um, <clears throat> dialogue is almost always positionally implemented when it's coming from a non-player character. Uh, that said, what we'll also often do is carry a separate pre-rendered reverberation layer, especially for narratively important or sort of emotionally important dialogue, because that allows us to commit to the tonality and the timbre of uh, those dialogue lines using like a higher fidelity, convolution reverb, Um that we can commit to sort of in the in the DAW, in the, in our digital audio workstation in Pro Tools. And so we'll sort of understand when it's at its most uh, cinematic, what exactly does that sound like without any question about how it might be manipulated through spatialization in the game engine. And then we'll blend those sort of cinematic layers with the fully positional layers. And then we can alter those blends based on distance and proximity and, and gameplay to sort of um, mix back and forth between a more sort of realistic or a more sort of immersive simulation approach for specific lines of dialogue and a more sort of cinematic or cutscene approach for dialogue. There are certain lines of dialogue where we might just leave it mono or stereo, especially when it's voiceover where, say, Master Yoda is speaking directly to you as the player, or um, Cecil Slack, our narrator, is actually telling a story and sort of chiming in over top of the story that we're playing through as a player character. We'll actually sort of allow those to be in your head or sort of between your ears, um, but otherwise most dialogue we always sort of externalize in such a way that it's sort of coming from outside your head or or from outside your headphones. Even for the the player character, um, when you play as the Jedi Addison Z, she actually does have dialogue um, that she contributes to conversations and cinematics and cutscenes. And so while that dialogue might be implemented as like a mono signal and it sort of comes from you as the player maybe sort of even from inside you or between your ears we are also processing her voice through the reverberation that's set up in the game so that it sounds like it's actually coming through the environment that's around her in the world and so that sort of gets the best of both worlds in terms of allowing you to embody a character and thinking that the sounds are coming from you but also having those sounds uh reflect off of the world around you The First
1: Order is as blind as they are greedy. Now, let's see what you found. That stubborn Bantha thought he was clever. Even more clever than me. But
0: he was wrong. I don't know how he discovered the way to
2: access the Jedi vault, But once this is cracked, we'll have the
1: key to... Uh, This is only half of the code. There must be another piece with the rest of the information. Check
2: another of his hiding places. Off you go. Hey there, just unloaded a new shipment of inventory. Come by and check it out when you get the chance.
3: So in working with all of these different new technologies and trying to create the sound and these different sounds that you're hoping to get and, you know, move people with the experience. I know that there's a lot of trial and error that goes into that. Um, Do you have any examples of something that you tried that that went horribly wrong or vice versa, something that you tried that you thought was really cool and now use quite frequently?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the sort of most obvious examples of those types of um, trials and tribulations were on some of our other earlier virtual reality experiences. And sort of what we were able to take advantage of on Tales from the Galaxy's Edge is less of a sort of like a, a new or innovative audio experience and more the fact that it's like the peak culmination of all of the things that we've been doing over the years. And so by maintaining the same sort of relatively small core team of content creators, um, we've been able to sort of take everything that we've learned over the years about how to process dialogue and how to process music and how to do sound design um, for spatial audio experiences and re- really like bring that to its, its peak "Entails from the Galaxy's Edge. And for us, it's really mostly about the most rapid iteration that we can over the sound assets themselves. Because what we find is Getting the the processing or the EQ and the DAW right uh, up front, or making sure that you've got sort of like enough noise or grit in sound design assets so that they can easily be spatialized and localized by your ears when they're played back through the spatial audio engine. Once we've learned that how to sort of create those assets, then it becomes more about like sort of an artistic conversation with ILMX Lab or you know the the creative directors about what do you want more or less of in the sound? You know, does the sound need to sound more threatening? Does it need to sound more melodic? Does it need to be more tonal? Does it need to be less tonal? Does it need to be dissonant with the music? And those are discussions that are often had based more on the sort of content creation on the asset themselves and less about how the asset is actually implemented using the spatial audio tools. Um, So a lot of it is just realizing that as we've learned on the earlier projects, the more spatial things are, the more sort of information is imparted through that sound, and perhaps the less um emotion that is evoked in that sound allows us to sort of decide up front, okay, we're going to implement this spatially, or we're going to implement this as stereo, or we're going to implement this as sort of mono voiceover, so it's it sounds like it's coming from between your ears, you know, inside your head. We sort of make those decisions early, and at least on Tails, we almost never changed the way we thought about implementing something um as opposed to you know iterating two or three or four times on the asset itself uh to get it to sound the way that we wanted to to evoke the right response in the in the the listener or in the player
1: is there anything that you feel like is really missing to take it to the next level or do you feel in terms of consumer expectation as it is today and audio tools and workflows that are available to us as content creators is, is kind of far more superior than what's expected. And I'm not talking about, you know, super trained, golden ears type of scenarios. I'm talking about just your average gamer, average, um, you know, experienced user, that kind of stuff. What else we're we missing? We, we can just sort of relax uh, for, for, for the time being and just enjoy the, you know, what community, what industry has achieved so far.
2: Um, I'm personally most excited about the prospect of either user customizable spatial audio implementation, um, whether from like personalized HRTF or more accessible tuning parameters for generic HRTF implementations, or even non HRTF based spatial audio solutions. So, one of the things that we found um, with all of our spatial audio experiences is that spatial audio, in and of itself, if you're not using a user customized Um, HRTF profile is it actually just introduces more variability into the sounds that you're hearing. So whereas on a a, a decent pair of headphones or a decent speaker setup, uh, you know, you can have a bunch of different listeners with a bunch of different um, perspectives on sound, you know, with a bunch of differently shaped ears and heads, you know, hear sounds and sort of be able to both subjectively and objectively evaluate them. But as soon as you put it into a spatial audio rendering solution, depending on how closely those generic HRTF implementations match the way that their brains are used to processing sound, you know, you get, you introduce things like front back confusion, you know, difficulty localizing vertical sound sources, things like that. And so while the, the math and science is always going to get more accurate in terms of the, the, the amount of, um, computations that we can make on any given frame, or the amount of you know an accuracy of reverberation and early reflection, until we actually allow users to be able to sort of tune those things to their own ears. I think that's really going to be when we start having those sort of like night and day experiences um, for for the end users and the and and our fans. If even if they don't have you know sort of golden ears so to speak, or if they're not audiophiles, um, I think in the same sort of way that you can take sort of like a really cheap non you know uh non high quality pair of headphones and sort of like a mid level or professional le- level of headphones and most people can sort of a- appreciate the differences without necessarily being able to articulate the exact nuances about why is one is better than the other um i think once we allow people to sort of tune hrtfs you know integrated in the software or hardware so like you know having some sort of system where you can say either here is my HRTF profile, you know, something that's attached to your gamer ID or your gamer tag or whatever, your your Apple ID, if you will. Um, or within the game menu or the hardware platform, be able to tune things. Uh, you know, we have this ability, I think, within like the Waves plugins and some of the other spatial audio tools where you can sort of make adjustments about things like head size or ear width or pick different HRTF um, renderers you know like are we using uh you know a renderer that's based on the sort of um google and youtube renderer or the oculus and facebook renderer or the neumann renderer or some other you know um hrtf data set you know uh i think allowing that to be sort of an easily selectable and tunable parameter within a video game experience or vr experience i think that's going to be the next biggest thing um, you know, in the same way that you know when you're playing on your your game console uh, at home, you select sort of like, "Hey, I want the high dynamic range cinematic mix" because I'm playing on my super hi-fi sound system, or I'm going to be playing late at night uh, and I want to keep the volume kind of down, so I'm going to go with the low dynamic range sort of mix. Or, "Hey, I'm I'm playing on uh, surround sound headphones that will actually do a binaural render for me, so I want to you know play the game and." Uh, surround sound or in Dolby Atmos and then let my, my monitor system do the down mix for us. I think it's those sort of easily selectable user choices, um, that we're currently lacking right now. Um, and that's a big disparity between the controls that we have as professional content creators who are both rendering assets and monitoring in our own professional environments and what our sort of end level users and consumers have access to. You know, cause I can get the same pair of headphones or, or give the fans the same pair of headphones and say, this is what should it, it should sound like. Um, But it's not a one-to-one comparison of like, well, this sounds really great to me using this HRTF. It should sound really great to you using this HRTF. You know what I mean? That's the one thing that I think we're really lacking now um, that personally, I think, will have a lot of value for the average consumer.
1: Yeah, I I can't agree more. And it's definitely coming as well. You know, Sony PlayStation, they announced that with their next iteration, they're going to have... A uh, custom HRTF system that will be available for the users. Um, you know, we had uh, Kushik Sunda on podcast uh, representing Embody talking about their custom HRTF system, and you know, the likes of Genelec also have uh, that available as a service, where you use a phone camera to take a picture of your ear, and um, not only that, will, that would be matched to the existing database of HRTF. It's it's used to generate. Your own bespoke HRTF on, uh, based on the existing parameters. So perhaps that's something we're going to see within the next generation of gaming consoles and um, systems alike. At the moment, PS5 has like five HRTF options that you can select. But like you said, these are like your classic, you know, damig Head K100, you know, um, YouTube. These are <laughs> Yorkshire ears. Yeah, looks like we're probably going to be moving into the more custom uh, way. And you know, machine learning is probably gonna play a huge role and the, the data set is quite limited in terms of its diversity. A lot of research to be done uh, still in terms of uh, what that uh, perfect custom HRTF, personalized HRTF can be um, in the future. It's, it's, it's a puzzle that is not solved yet, um, but it's going in the right direction.
2: Yeah, that's sort of like the the scientific and academic approach. I would love to see what someone could come up with if they try to sort of gamify, you know, the capturing of a, a personalized HRTF response. Like the the mechanic I always compare it to is it the beginning of first-person games where they sort of est- establish, uh, you know, how you're going to use your camera control versus movement mechanics and whether or not you're going to invert uh, the thumbstick, you know, so that when you press up, do you look up? Or when you press up, do you look down sort of thing? Um, and, you know, and they found ways to to integrate that sort of, um, you know, control option uh, mechanic, sometimes within even like an, a narrative justification, like in the Halo games, like usually it's like the first time, you know, you're in the Spartan armor as Master Chief, you know, some technician will be like, okay, now look up to look at the light, you know, look down to look at the light. And that it'll sort of like calibrate it within the context of the game world. I think that would be. Uh, a really great approach for spatial audio experiences, right? Like, how do we actually gamify it and make it fun or accessible to the end users as opposed to, like, you have to go to a lab with an anechoic chamber and stick some stuff in your ears and then, you know, let, let, let us shoot loud sounds at you. Um, you know, I do like uh, the idea of how far we can get by simply just, like, taking pictures of, like, your ears or your head. And I think, you know, any information that you can get is better than having no information at all. But so when you actually make that information gathering process sort of like a fun part of the experience or a, just a, an expected part of the experience, um, that really lowers the the barrier to entry and also will increase uh, the data that we have access to, right? Because right now, the only way we're able to sort of get those HRTF data sets is, is to bring people into the lab, you know? Um, and yeah, that, that leaves out huge chunks of the demographics. Um, you know, women, um, children, younger folks, Um, people who aren't in proximity to the institutions that are developing these data sets, Um, you know, and and gaming and spatial audio, as they can be accessible on, on, you know, practically every platform now, you know, even um, relatively modest smartphones. um, I think we need to have a a much broader range of data uh, to support a much broader range of listeners.
1: Talking purely about uh, human physiology and anatomy, uh, you know, the, people are very different all over the world. And uh, uh, we're talking about the factors that are really contributing to the HRTF. Um, and, you know, that's completely missing from the equation. And whoever's going to solve this holy grail problem will probably let, make a lot of money. I feel like, I'll repeat myself again, I feel like AI will be the, the key contributing factor when it comes to bridging this, um, you know, purely scientific and accurate approach versus something that could be like super quick and easy, accessible for any end user, you know, wherever the context, whether they're listening to uh, music on A- Apple music streaming service with Dolby Atmos or they're playing, um, you know, AAA game on Xbox or PSVR. Um, speaking of Apple, it feels, feels like those are the sort of people that should be throwing all their billions on these kind of problems, right?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's there's lots of, of rumors and speculation about what Apple's initial entry into uh, to augmented reality or mixed reality or virtual reality might be. And I, and I think there's probably also a lot of companies and organizations that are either sort of waiting to respond to whatever Apple's foray is or are sort of racing them to market. Um, so I think that's going to be the sort of next generation shift in terms of the range of hardware and software uh, that are available is really sort of once Apple steps into the market and you know how did all the their competitors respond?
3: Uh, Kevin, is there anything else you want to share um, about our, our hot topic, Star Wars Tales from the Galaxy's Edge, before we move on?
2: I think I think for Star Wars Tales from the Galaxy's Edge, what I really loved most about the game is that unlike most sort of traditional games, where you, you may have sort of like a single player campaign or an adventure, and then you've got sort of like side quests, you know, or sort of like a, a multiplayer component of it. Um, tales from the Galaxy's Edge was designed from the very beginning to actually be an anthology type experience. And so, you know, over the course of five or six hours or more of content, um, we're actually telling three different adventures and three different tales from multiple settings within the star wars universe and so i think whether you're a sort of um vr veteran or you know a, a an established star wars fan i think the amount of content and the different gameplay mechanics and the different settings that are in Tails make it a really great either sort of first vr experience or a sort of uh you know first star wars gaming experience because, um, you know, there's everything. There's exploration, there's blasters, there's lightsabers, there's the Force. You know, there's big monsters, small monsters, uh, you know, good triumphing over evil. Um, but we did it in a, a really interesting way um, that I think appeals to the broadest range of Star Wars fans, um, which for me is is ultimately what it's all about at the end of the day, is is making cool sounds that make people happy. And so, you know, through all of the sound design and through all of the music and really the great dialogue performances, um, we've told some really cool Star Wars stories in a way that's, that's pretty approachable and affordable um, on the, the MetaQuest 2. And, and, you know, up until now, really, the, there often is quite a bit of a barrier to entry to uh, experiencing the sort of high fidelity VR content. You, you either needed to, to have a really powerful gaming PC or you needed to go to a conference or a location-based experience that had bespoke hardware. Um, but being able to sort of like download it and play at home, either you know seated or standing or sitting on your sofa or whatever, um, it's a really, I think it's a really compelling and a really accessible uh, Star Wars experience.
3: What are you excited about in the future of Spatial Audio and its role in immersive art and entertainment?
2: I'm excited just for the continuing um, improvement in accessibility, both in content creation tools And the distribution platforms. I mean, you know, sort of what you talked about earlier, um, you know, the Facebook Spatial Workstation as being a a, um, freely accessible tool uh, that content creators could use and then being able to upload their 360 videos and their spatial audio works to um, the Facebook platform or to the YouTube platform. You know, now with the proliferation of of more affordable ambisonic microphones and 360 video cameras. Uh, you know, the the accessibility and the, the, the training and tools for the Unreal Engine and the Unity Engine. You know, I'm really excited for the art that someone's going to create that I can't even imagine right now, right? Because I think part of the fun is when someone who's new to an art form or new to a tool set or new to a platform is thinking outside the box because, like, they don't know the rules yet. And, you know, for the challenge for some of us that are sort of veteran content creators... To a certain extent, we've sort of created rules around us or we sort of like understand the acceptable structures or the acceptable workflows. Um, but I think the true innovation is going to be those things that sort of totally come out from left field and we're all going to go like, wow, I never really thought that I never really thought of doing it that way or I never really thought of of making an experience like this. Um, so I'm just excited that things are cheaper and more affordable than ever they were before. Um, for content creators and artists to like get started making, you know, frankly, really high fidelity content.
3: So, what is the best way to find out more about yourself and the work you do, as well as ILM X Lab and Skywalker Sound?
2: I mean, you know, follow us on on social media. Uh, you know, uh ILMX Lab. Uh we you know we post uh trailers and teasers and behind the scenes constantly on social media, on, on Facebook and YouTube and LinkedIn um, and StarWars.com. You know, anytime we have an exciting Star Wars related experience, um, you know, we post things there as well. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that's that's the best way to follow us. And, and you'll find out as soon as everyone else in the world.
3: Can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career?
2: My biggest piece of advice would be don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, early in my career, I felt like the expectation was that either I needed to learn or I needed to teach myself everything that I needed to know to do my job. Um, but the culture at Skywalker Sound immediately changed that perspective. Um, and I was interviewing for my first job there as a, as a recordist and a, a mix technician. And I asked, like, why would they even consider hiring me, someone with who only had professional experience in, like, video games and AV tech and some live sound, why would you hire me over someone who might already have like existing experience on a large format, like digital film mixing console? Um, And the engineering director was sort of like, he was pretty upfront about it. He was like, well, you know, we're constantly innovating tools and workflows. And so really no amount of existing knowledge is going to be able to surpass your ability to like learn on the job from the team around you. And, you know, finding the right questions to ask um, in pursuit of your job or your career or your craft or your art form I think is more important than thinking that you might already have all of the right answers, or that you know where to find those answers on your own. And really, it's that sense of of community and cultivation and mentorship um, that sets the the team at Skywalker apart from anywhere else. Um, and and that's one of the reasons why we're all you know evangelists for the 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 art that we make and the things that we work on because we love what we do and we love sharing. The sort of secrets as much as we can about the things that we do. And I found that is is true with everyone that I've worked with at Skywalker, um, no matter how new they are to the team or how long that they've been there. Um, and so, you know, ask questions. And eventually you'll get really good at asking the really good questions. And as you get more effective at that, you'll actually get more effective at your job or your career. Um, I think it's it's making the assumptions that you should either know the answers, or that you need to find the answers on your own. Um, that honestly, it it can take a lot of time, and you might not come to the same assumptions as the stakeholders who are all ultimately making the decision about the work that you're you're, you're doing. Um, especially if you're an artist that's doing sort of work for hire, uh, you know, or if you're working with other creative teams and clients and creative directors who are going to be giving you feedback on your work. Uh, I find it's more important to ask questions up front early and often and present your work early and often so that you can get as much feedback and response as possible on the actual content itself um, rather than sort of working and working and working to try to make something that you think is amazing, but it might be amazing, but it might just not be what your client is looking for. Um, and ultimately, you know, it's sort of, you know, our responsibility, especially in the sort of narrative art forms to, to serve the story or uphold the, the, the director's vision uh, as opposed to like just making something that you think is awesome. And often, if you're lucky, you get to do both.
1: Kevin, that's such an awesome advice. And um, I love the context, so relevant as well. Thank you. And uh, Kevin, thanks very much for talking to us today. Um, we've learned a ton. Uh, thanks for your time.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much.
1: Take care. Thank you both. You too.
0: If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash immersive audio podcast. You've been listening to the immersive audio podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell, Bjorn Jacobson, and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit immersiveaudiopodcast.com to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
3: Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.